Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. And Ellie. And we are the Queer Arabs. I'm Saudi American and a lesbian. I'm bi trans Lebanese, and we are recording here in America. And we are recording with two awesome guests. Um, can you two introduce yourselves? Yeah, so um, I'm a seal. Um, should I say my pronouns? Sure, yeah. Um, okay, she, her, hers. Um, and I'm actually Sierra and American, and I live in Ohio right now. Awesome. And my name is Jonathan Branfman. I use he, him, his pronouns, and I am Jewish American, originally from Russia way back. Awesome. Jonathan uh, wrote a really incredible book, and Asil did the translation um, into Arabic. And so we're going to be talking about the book. First off, you know, like what they're hoping the book will do for people, and then the contents of the book and the process of translating, how that went down for this subject. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Having us. And for anyone who knows Arabic, um, Asil was on the Arabic side of the podcast, so you can check that episode out too. So that's already been published. John, uh, can you give a summary of the book that you recently published? Oh, well, the title and a summary. Sure. So the book is called UBU, Explaining Gender, Love, and Family. And the book explains gender, sexual, and family diversity for children in an age-appropriate way. So, for example, explaining what it means to be transgender, explaining that you could have two moms or two dads. And it explains how to recognize and oppose discrimination. So if you're experiencing discrimination or somebody you know is being discriminated against, it helps kids understand this problem and know how to speak up against it. Wow. Awesome. What, I guess, when did you start thinking about this? What inspired you to write this? So I started thinking about it and writing it in 2016 because my job is that I'm a PhD student in women's gender and sexuality studies. So I like to joke that I'm a career queer. And a lot of our job in gender studies is helping college age adults unlearn all these toxic ideas about gender and sexuality that they've been learning for 18 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. Like the assumption that there are only two genders and that it's weird if you want to change genders or um, the assumption that it's gross or shameful to be gay or that only straight people could be good parents. And even though it's very rewarding to help people question these negative beliefs, I often find myself thinking, wouldn't it be great if we all just learned it right the first time when we were like four, uh, instead of having to carry all these toxic ideas that make queer people feel bad about ourselves and sometimes make straight people hurtful to queer people? Like, what if we all could just get stigma-free, accurate information about family and gender and sexual diversity right from the beginning? And that's what I want to offer in the book. That's so refreshing. Yeah, I mean, because unlearning so much is a process. It's not just overnight. So if you can, yeah. And it's not like the children exist in this great educational void with no interaction with the outside world either. So Mm -hmm. right, that's a really great point. And I just want to jump on that and say, Sometimes a question I get is, well, isn't it inappropriate or too early to be explaining these topics to kids? And the truth is, kids are receiving a ton of messages about gender and sexuality from the beginning. Watching Snow White or Cinderella or certainly The Little Mermaid is a ton of gender messages about how boys and girls are supposed to act, what love is supposed to look like. And I would argue those are mostly harmful messages. So why can't we provide healthy, accurate messages instead. This thought of, oh, it's too early, that sends a message that it's in a, anything else is inappropriate, like anything aside from the two genders, two cis. Heteronormative like thing. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And when, by, by what is inappropriate about that? Yeah. It's yeah. basically we're telling kids when we say, oh, this is an adult conversation. It's just like, oh, hey, these people 
this is a bad thing. We shouldn't be talking about it with you. Right. Like your existence is scandalous in a mm-hmm. way that right. straight people's isn't. Well, my existence is scandalous for other reasons, but <laughs> good for you. <laughs> Bravo, Ellie. Um, So the book has been translated into many languages, which I think is so incredible. Making it so accessible for people is awesome. And thank you. You know, I know that translating isn't a literal process. You have to think about cultural context and things like that. So Asil, can you talk about what factors you had to think about when you translated this to Arabic? Yeah, um, I think the fact that Arabic is such a gendered language is the first like roadblock that I had hit when I first you know was going to translate the book Um, particularly when it came to distinguishing sex from gender in Arabic because when I was you know brought up you know speaking Arabic that was something that was used simultaneously and I knew that for the purpose of the book and also in general I needed to make a distinction and so that led me to other resources um, that helped me kind of like look into new terms that were being used in the Arabic language, Um, but also taking into account like the cultural, you know, nuances and stigmas that already exist in um, Arabic culture and addressing that head on. Like I remember when I was translating, um, Jonathan, I don't know if you remember this, but I did add like a note in the beginning of the book saying, hey, so like um, there's certain terms that are used, you know, derogatively towards certain, you know, demographics that we are not going to be using and just kind of like, you know, putting that out in so as to almost like address the stigma, but also try to find like an alternative word to use instead. And in that sense, educating people on like what terms exist right now and why the other ones that were being used previously were incorrect. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, Asil, didn't we, we originally talked about the word liwati and how it's commonly used but insulting. And then did we end up using mythly instead? Yeah, so luti is actually, yeah, it's a pretty derogatory term used against homosexual um, men usually, and so we ended up using mythi instead. And that, that term in general has been recently introduced um, thanks to a lot of Arab NGOs. I don't know if you guys are familiar with like Lebmash, and okay. there's like, uh, so your podcast was one of the things that I was looking through when I, I actually ended up writing a thesis yes. about this. But um, oh there are yeah um but there are several ngos in the middle east right now that exist that are combating these linguistic issues and one of the biggest ones that i found was through like a lot of lebanese ngos such as lebanon support lebmash um and just a collective that were just like you know producing these dictionaries and having these campaigns where they were using words like mythly in place of luti or you know luti yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't remember who, there's this one dictionary. Um, the gender dictionary? Is that what you're talking about? A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lebanese. So that was Lebanon support, but I did use that a lot for my translation. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, I was really excited to see that just kind of recently, like a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know, like since the book has published, can you talk about the responses that that you've gotten both of you like responses to from readers sure so most of the responses have been super positive and as one example uh kate bornstein who's a relatively well-known trans jewish activist i know uh, her oh good, really? good. I'm glad oh, you know her. Cool. yeah she, she she's wonderful and she retweeted a, a tweet about the book and that actually got a british children's press interested in it so originally all versions hey. of the book were self-published through amazon but uh, Jessica Kingsley Publishers in London is now publishing the English edition coming out in August. Wow. So that's really exciting. And that's thanks to um, Kate Bornstein's support. So thank you, Kate Bornstein. Uh, but that's a great example of positive reception. Uh, there's been very little negative pushback. Uh, last year, a class that I was teaching at OSU somehow sort of became the target of negativity from Breitbart and similar oh, Lord. kind of white supremacist news sources. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, 
as part of that backlash, some people got angry about the book. Someone called the office where I work and said something like, why are you people trying to teach my grand grandchild how to stick things up his butt? That's not covered in this book. But, uh, <laughs> but I think... Maybe part two. Maybe. Yeah, part two. <laughs> but I, so I think that that example, even though I feel silly even repeating that example on here, I think it's useful because it captures how people equate gay identity with, quote, scandalous sex acts. Yeah. And there's still this homophobic idea in our society that you can talk about straight love in a way that is wholesome, but that any mention <laughs> right. of gay people is automatically equated with pornographic sex acts. Um, okay. And although I want for the future that like sexuality in general would become less stigmatized, mm -hmm. I do think it's striking that somebody heard a, a book that explains the existence of gay people to children and automatically assumed it was a book about sex. Without I, I, looking at it, or, yeah. Right, and, and so right. that is the kind of stigma this book seeks to dispel. Oh, my yeah. dad could have used that book. Uh, <laughs> when I when I came out, he basically assumed I wanted to be a prostitute. Oh wow! Yeah. So There's have this... things changed a little bit? Uh, yeah, that was damn. How long ago is that? That was like twenty twenty over twenty five years ago at this point. So, and we we're talking. We talk now, and we're relatively friendly. So yeah, things have changed. I'm glad. But could have used it back then. <laughs> Exists now. Yeah, I'm so and, uh, still, I'm really curious yeah. to hear, like, for Arabic yeah. speakers, have you gotten any feedback about the book? Gosh, yeah. Um, I think well, there's an added la added layer of there's this misconception in maybe the Arab community or any like non-Western community that you know anything that's like queer, LGBT centric or friendly is a Western concept, mm. and so I. I remember when I was talking about my translations to people like in my community or, you know, people that were from Arabic backgrounds, there was a sense of being of defense that I felt where people were trying to preserve, you know, Arabic culture, Arabic norms by saying that, you know, this is not okay because we are Arab and we are Eastern and that's not something we do. So I kind of had to, the weird thing about that was that I felt that it was my job almost to kind of educate people on the fact that this was something that was happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so that was really learning curve for, you know, some people. And on my end, it was kind of hard for me to kind of, it, it's hard, I think it's hard for a lot of people to see things in a way that isn't necessarily an attack on their identity. And so mm -hmm. that was the biggest issue for me. But on a better note, I think a lot of, you know, up and coming college kids or like young adults especially like in the Arab American community were a lot more open to it and actually a lot of them were grateful that there were terms being created for people to either describe or you know self-identify as and I think that was pretty cool but I mean there was that 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 tension that I felt with a lot of older um you know first generation Arab Americans that was it was interesting but also something that I had to learn how to like articulate in a sense Mm -hmm. It's that phrase that Ellie likes to ironically use, that it's the <laughs> evil Western influence. Yeah, yeah. And some people truly believe that, which is the sad part. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. a lot of it is left over because of the whole colonial era and, you know, There's decolonization. That. Oh, hey, history history has been a bitch again. And mm -hmm. jumping off of that, I remember, Asil, when you and I did that artist talk a little while ago, one of the questions was about colonialism in relation to this book that I think one of the accusations we're likely to receive from some people is that this book is an example of sort of Western gays trying to colonize other cultures with our thoughts about gayness. And mm -hmm. I was curious to hear your thoughts on how you would respond to that. Yeah, and it's just interesting because when I was writing my thesis, which is mostly about, you know, developing terminology for queer individuals in the Middle East, I realized that the history of, 
the queer identity in the region was colonized by the West, like you said, Ellie. And I think the thing that people don't understand is that, you know, today's, you know, perception of the Arab or Muslim world as something that's very repressive is actually a result of that. And so I think it's almost ironic if you don't know the entire story that in reality, like our history has been a lot more relatively, I would say, open to queerness up until I would say about a century ago. And so once people understand the bigger story, I think there's more to say to that. Um, but I think the reason why people would think that, you know, what's queer, what's LGBT is Western is because they don't know what happened, you know, prior to World War One or the fall of the Ottoman Empire. And yeah. they just are coming from recent events. Cool. And the sad part was a lot of the rejection of the queer identity was sort of asserting local values, you know, mm -hmm. like what was perceived as local values to um, to, assert the, to sort of develop their own identity outside of the colonial identity, you know? That's how I feel anyway. I'm, I'm not a scholar on this, so I could be completely fucking wrong. Well, that's the sense that I got to when I was doing yeah. my research, so yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. It's not just me. <laughs> No, not at all. Asil, was this your first experience translating anything of this nature into Arabic? Like anything related to queer topics or gender topics, stuff like that? Oh, wow. Yes. But I think yeah. that also opened an entirely new avenue that I realized I wasn't, I didn't realize how like little contributions were being made linguistically in terms of like being like having resources for queer youth in the region like was just like non-existent but it's also something that has like an increasing demand and I think that's yeah. I think you know the fact that your book is being translated into so many like, languages and is spanning so many cultures is bringing is part of this movement that where people are realizing that there is a need that needs to be met and I think that's pretty good but I think for me as a translator I would want to do more work in this field just because I feel like it's so neglected and so I'm happy for it but yes this is my first this was my first foray yeah. into yeah it sounds challenging because it, so it sounds like you really had to dig for resources. Nothing was like readily available. And right. That's yeah. not because there's a lack of effort. It's just the fact is right. for a long time we were, yeah, it was neglected for a hot minute. <laughs> and I'm glad you're doing it. Um, it feels like almost a passion project, right? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Because like if it were just somebody like at a book publisher doing a translation for a job, it might not get the same care and love. And the thing is, if you don't have a feel <laughs> for the topic, especially in the Arabic language, like it really doesn't translate the right way. Like I remember being a child and like yeah. going out, we would spend summers in Syria and I would read like books that were originally in English, but translated into Arabic. And like I'd read them in English already, like To Kill a Mockingbird, for example, is a good example. Okay. And I just felt that because the translator, to me, it seemed like didn't understand what was going on in the story. I felt mm -hmm. like it was being told in a way that wasn't genuine. And yeah. so when it comes mm -hmm. to translation, I think it's very important that the person has a connection to the source and also knows how to articulate it to that culture or people of that tongue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, something that I'm reminded of in this conversation is that when our Arabic edition first came out, we showed it to a friend of a friend in Columbus who is also Syrian-American. Uh, and his first response was, you've made a mistake. There is no separate word for gender. Gender is just sex in Arabic. And yeah. I, I remember Asil and I had this conversation oh. of like, well, we're trying to change that. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting because I was yeah. just seeing that in action. Like, really? Yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting to see. Wow. Just that reaction is eye-opening. Think mm -hmm. of this, the mentality that um, sex and gender cannot be separated. It's almost woven into the language. It's just... Right. It's challenging, yeah. 
Yeah, and how language affects someone's mentality. In English, for such a long time, there were no good words for distinguishing sex from gender. And I think, what's the right word? If this language can evolve, any language also can evolve. Mm-hmm. I mean, we still sort of had that problem in English. Like, a lot of people just don't dissociate sex and gender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's Absolutely. not just a language issue. It's more like just having the thought in the public consciousness idea. Even in contexts like mm-hmm. medical, like where medical professionals talk about a newborn mm-hmm. and talk about gender and sex and kind of use the words, you know, interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that's a tone. Yeah, it's usually what I use as sort of a barometer when I'm going to a new doctor's office. Does the intake forms have different fields for sex and gender? Mm-hmm. So. Mm. Is that pretty rare to see that? Uh, Less so these days, but I also am living in the third largest city in America, which has pretty excellent trans health care for the most part, if you have the money. I think it's the fourth largest. Third. We're fighting for the third. (laughs) But it's not just like an Arab language problem. It is also an English language problem because even people who are in a field where that should be like a well-known and well-differentiated thing don't do it. And also, from having worked with some of our other translators, there were similar questions with the Greek translator of how to choose words, um, sometimes similar questions with the Chinese translators. So it's definitely a common challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that must have been interesting to see what commonalities there were among different languages. And then also... Mm -hmm what were distinct issues uh, and also was- like how many words could you find that weren't inherently derogatory right. yeah <laughs> yeah and i wonder if even if a word is not derogatory i wonder if some people who have a prejudice still see those words as inappropriate or derogatory it's um, interesting to- sure yeah that sounds really challenging um navigating also with like adding the fact that it's a children's book and how to make it mm. understandable to children yes Absolutely. Wow. I'm so impressed. I'm so happy you did this. And we we also want to thank you for the copy of the book that you sent us in Arabic. Oh, my pleasure. I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Several people we know have gotten the book in various languages and are excited about it. So yeah. some yeah. of them are actually some of them are actually gonna be read to children. Yeah. Our ah, friend got sorry. a Spanish, <laughs> English, and Arabic one. You oh, yeah. Oh, she was so excited. I, mean, I definitely I think Asil and I both felt that this book would be a valuable resource for adults as well as children, because by by phrasing it simpler language for kids, that also makes this topic accessible for adults who are new to the topic. And I think even though any topic can be difficult when it's new to you, this is also a topic that people feel especially afraid of, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so our goal was to make the book as... um, comfortable as an experience as possible and i think it's still going to like challenge people on their assumptions about gender and sexuality but just using the phrasing and using examples that are so real to people's lives that they can really get it and not just get their hackles up and be defensive about rejecting it right Right. it's really hard to be defensive about this book with how bright and cheery and simple it is so i mean it's simple to understand in a way but it's also in depth and I also just want to thank Julie Ben Bassett, the illustrator, who did such a wonderful job yeah. with the illustrations. Uh, she's very talented. I encourage you to check out her art. Yeah, those illustrations are gorgeous. This is a this is just a stunning, even aesthetically stunning book. Thank you, thank you. Can you both, I guess, 
yeah, whatever you both want to say about what you're hoping this book will do to affect people and then like how it will reach people, parents, children, anyone else that, you know, you're hoping that this will do for people. Sure. I see. I'll go for it. Oh, sure. Um, I, I guess my main hope is that, you know, kids that are Arabic speaking or, you know, have some sort of experience with the Arabic language, have a resource for which they can find some sort of validation in their experiences. Because um, I know growing up, I had nothing to go off of. And, you know, the concept of being queer or bi, because or, that, that, that's how I identify, it was just something that was, you know, a westernized concept. It was definitely something that I was struggling with. And I know that to have grown up with that resource would have made me feel as though it's almost it's something that is natural and that it's okay and that there are words for it that I can use to identify um so that I, you know in a way that makes me feel like I'm less alienated from my own culture that's that's my main hope for that I also would love for it to be a resource for which you know children can educate their parents in a way <laughs> just because that's how I naturally would see it occurring initially and then like you said you know the fact that you have friends that are buying it for their kids is excellent as well so I just I'm my hope is that it is an educational resource and that it opens doors for other books to be written and other resources to be created as well yeah absolutely I really hope that for kids who are LGBT or who kind of are in the process of figuring that out about themselves, that the book helps them accept themselves. And then I feel like you said that in the translations that it helps kids reconcile their LGBT identities with other identities like Arab identity um, mm -hmm. that are often imagined to be contradictory when of course they're not. Um, and I also hope that the book will help adults accept their children you know we yeah. people often forget this but in America today plenty of people in, including like plenty of quote white bread Americans mm -hmm. uh, have very harsh reactions to their kids coming out or even hurt their kids or kick them out Definitely. and I, I really hope this book can help over the long term to reduce that reaction uh, and yeah. I also think this kind of education is important for kids who are straight or in the process of figuring out that they're straight because yeah. So many kids, and I see this even with my students, either absorb explicitly hateful ideas or the more implicitly hateful or derogatory ideas. Like people who would say, well, of course, I would never hit a gay person, but why should you have the right to get married or why should you be able to adopt kids? Mm -hmm. So I, I really hope this book can, can work on shifting our cultural climate. And I think that's actually why some people have such a harsh reaction to this kind of book, um, because they... they know that this kind of education actually can shift our climate so that fewer people get themselves so worked up about gay people existing and trans people existing. We're yeah. here, we're queer, can everyone please just like read a children's book and get over it? Get over it. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Now that's possible. Right. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, where can people find the book? So it's primarily on Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, so the English version and many of the translations, including Arabic, Chinese, Russian, and Spanish, are uh, yeah. online. Uh, sorry, on on Amazon. Only the English version is available by Kindle. Um, and then okay. Amazon has recently limited the languages in which you can publish new self-published books. So oh. um, Serbian, Bolivian, Quechua and Latvian are either out or about to be out in just like free PDF oh format. So we're excited about those and Danish will be coming soon and it will be available in hard copy through awesome. Amazon. Ooh, awesome. Fancy. Wow, Quechua, that's awesome. Thank you. How many languages so far has it been um, translated to? Uh, 19, I think. Wow. 19. 
Yeah, so a lot of the big ones, the only like really major world language we don't have yet is Hindu, uh, and I'm in conversations about that. That's also a little more challenging because South Asia has its own really extensive history of gender diversity that like um, Koti and um, Hijra. So we like the the book would need to be different to acknowledge that cultural diversity. But um, one question I thought it might be neat to discuss a little bit, uh, Asil, is how did you make decisions in terms of modern standard Arabic versus regional variations of Arabic for the book? Oh, good question. Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up writing the book in MSA. And the reason why I did that was because uh, it is regarded as the like the unified language um in the region um the dialects vary like vastly um i'm sure you guys can confirm that since you know what are, you, are you saudi and lebanese saudi right? and lebanese we don't yeah. neither of us grew up with speaking arabic but but we've definitely encountered yeah, like completely different um yeah, throughout definitely. the region so the best way to reach the most amount of people is by using modern standard Arabic and so that's what I did but the reason why that was difficult was because talking about such complex topics and social issues sometimes it's almost you would think that it would be easier to use a dialect but I also didn't want to like alienate anybody else in like any other dialectical speakers so that's that that was a choice for me Um, thank you for keeping queer people from being just a Lebanese influence now (laughs) 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 Although I kind of want to see the rise of evil Lebanese influence, but that's just me. <laughs> well, so a, that's a question. I'm proud of. A question for Ali and Ellie. Um, have you shared the Arabic version of the book with any of your family members who do speak Arabic, and how did it go when they saw it? I have not yet, but I definitely plan to. I have one specific cousin who I think needs to know it exists, uh-huh. but I am going to just gently nudge it toward her. I want to let her know about it. Have you told any of your family uh, members yet? No, unfortunately, I'm kind of done fighting them on everything. Mm. Like, you, you saw, like, how me and my uncle were going at it the, like, two, like what was it, three or four weeks ago? Mm-hmm. Like, I, mm. I've settled most of those fights. I don't, unfortunately, I can't, I don't have the energy anymore to fight them on everything. And putting this book anywhere near them would just be a fight. Maybe, maybe sure. with your younger cousins, like oh. your cousin's children. It might, be, um, it might be something. The younger cousins, I don't think it... The younger cousins who are... The, my younger cousins are basically uh, half white. So, mm-hmm. and... They, well, what about the English version? Those specific cousins who are having kids right now are actually pretty cool. They were some of the first to accept me, so... Good. But even if someone's cool, it might be good for mm-hmm. them to, like... Yeah. Have it. I don't know. I'm. I guess, for me, it's it'll be a challenge um, because all of that side of my family is in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Getting getting a physical copy there might be an issue. It, yeah, 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 you don't yeah. want to get anyone in legal trouble, of course. Yeah, so that's my one, my personal concern. So I definitely want to at least let this one cousin know about it. Even over WhatsApp, With I have some pictures that I'm going mm-hmm. to show her. But yeah, that's the extent of what I feel like I can do right now. But hopefully Absolutely. in the future, that'll that'll shift. A much younger me could have used this book. So. Yeah. yeah. And I hope that the younger versions of all of us are out there now getting copies of this book or others like it mm-hmm. and just feeling better. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, oh, hey, this isn't just, you know, Harvey Milk and Americans for the last 40 years. Right. Because mm-hmm. sometimes I feel like that lack of history does, like, it does catch up to us whenever, like, young people are trying to do research and they don't have the words and Mm -hmm. 
if you try to go overly specialized academic language for mm -hmm. when you're searching, you know, it just becomes like, oh, this is like an Ivy Tower elite thing, or oh, this is something that just exists in westernized um, academic circles. And so having it in like modern standard, like reachable Arabic and building this sort of cultural cachet of this language existing and being used outside of purely academic circles is intensely inv invaluable. So yeah. awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. And for our listeners in places like Saudi Arabia, uh, feel free to hit us up and let us know how you think, if it, you think it's possible for us to help you get access to the book in some way. So mm -hmm. thank you both so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. If, thank you. If anyone wants to reach out to you, get in touch with you in any way, um, is there, do you want to give out any contact information or they could contact us and we can pass on any messages they might have? Yeah, I think that's perfect. If folks want to mm -hmm. contact you about getting in touch with us, that sounds perfect. Awesome. Yeah. awesome. Or if you have any email addresses or websites you want to plug? Yeah, any website or anything? Certainly, if, if you... Uh, Google Jonathan Branfman, Ohio State University, my uh, academic website will come up. Uh, we'll put the Amazon link on our uh, website. And everyone, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Queer Arabs. And then you can contact Ahmed for the Arabic side of the podcast at thequeerarabsinarabic at gmail.com or contact us at Ellie and me, thequeerarabs at gmail.com. Thank you for adding this amazing piece of, this amazing resource to the world. It's so important what you did. Our pleasure. Bye everyone. Mm -hmm.